All right. Well, okay. This is not what I wanted. Hang on one second. I don't want presenter again. I was going to do it anyway. All right. So this is the last, this is the concluding session for this whole series, this apologetic series. Okay. We started by proving God's existence. And as we've said, you know, you, establishing the authenticity of the Bible as well is a huge part of apologetics as well. And once we conclude that, we're going to look into other areas, but these are the two main uh, things that we need to establish and we need to determine at, you know, at the very outset. And so we're concluding that today, and the way we're going to do that is basically pretty much going through what, how John Calvin had established it. Okay. I guess I'm going to have to look over here. All right, John Calvin, who lived from 1509 to uh, 1594, uh, said that there are internal arguments for the authority of Scripture as opposed to external, which we discussed last week. Now, let me just say also, because as most of you all know, through my testimony, I was saved through the Bible. I when I came, I came later to this analysis, and it just further validated all the studies that, 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 that I had gone through to procure and to secure my assurance in the Bible. And so this is kind of a brief synopsis of, of that. So I just find this perfectly fitting. Uh, this, is analysis, this analysis is so rarely given these days. So I think it's, it's prudent to give it the philosophy of the second glance, as we've discussed. You know, bring these things back to the fore to, to even consider these things that we take for granted. Okay, so that's basically what he's doing. So Calvin referred to what he called the indicia in the scriptures, which were, which were in, internal indicators or objective evidence which displays the supernatural origin of scripture. So he's using scripture, the internal evidences in scripture, to authorize scripture. Okay, all right. And this isn't a circular argument. This is a linear way by which he does this, and we'll see that. He began by a general observation that the Bible is far superior to any other volume and that no human writings, however skillfully composed, are at all capable of affecting us in a similar way, which I've I briefly told you certainly is my own experience. And we'll get there a little bit. Um, okay, we briefly discussed his argument through the antiquity of the Bible. Remember, we talked about how long it's been around and how carefully it's been uh, passed on from generation to generation. Um, so, the antiquity of the Bible includes the assertion that God did not wait eons before supplementing his general revelation with his holy word. Real quickly, let me just introduce at the outset, because Moses is, is attributed as writing the first five books of the Bible, which we've established, and which even Christ had said. Now, that's not to suggest there were no writings before, but was more likely the case is that they were orally passed down from generation to generation, starting from Adam. Essentially, the Bible started with the beginning of, the, of uh, creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And really, Adam was the first man, right? And so after the fall, it, the Bible even goes on to, he taught the gospel. Remember, the first promise of God, of the promised seed, was actually during him cursing the, uh, Adam and Eve and the serpent. But we get, the, we get the first glimpse of the gospel in that account, 
Okay, so really the Bible started there and really passed on from generation to generation. This is essential. This is important. And we're going to even get into that a little bit. But that's important just to put... So the antiquity doesn't just go back as far as Moses. That's my point. Antiquity goes back as far as Adam and Eve in the garden. That's, what, that's the point. Okay. Additionally, as we've observed, no book in all of history is taken... We've already mentioned that. Uh, so uh, to such critical evaluation is of scribes and copyists as has the Bible. We'll, we'll get into more of that. Furthermore, as we've discussed, no book has been subjected to such criticism or analysis. That's just a um, brief overview of what we've already uh, talked about. All right. However, in light of this, it not only remains in existence, but still remains the number one bestseller, even after all these criticisms, even after all these assumptions that we've been talking about with these people infusing naturalistic philosophies and Hegelian philosophies and all these ridiculous criticisms, still it remains the number one bestseller. And, okay, it has survived the test of time and criticism. That's, that's the point. No matter what, God remains faithful. No matter, despite all the confluences and, and, and ideas of man and all of this to, to destroy it, God remains true and faithful to his word. Now, returning to the Bible's origin, he makes the essential point that Moses did not introduce the new deity. That's the point. He could not have. None of the people would have accepted that. If he, would have, if he would have given some story about this, this God who created the heavens, and the, the heavens and the earth and then through uh, six days basically made all of life on the, on the earth and all the trees and everything and then goes on to the account in Genesis of jo Joseph and all the rest, he could not have done that without the people already knowing that. Does that make sense? So he doesn't introduce a new deity. He, he's, he's writing about what all of these Hebrews know. Okay, there's a reason they were Hebrews even then, because their forefathers were, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see that throughout Genesis. Okay, um, he merely set forth that doctrine which the Israelites had received throughout their generations that had uh, he had uh, referred to matters of which they, oh, had he referred to matters of which they had never heard, he never could have su succeeded. That's what I'm saying. That's, that's basically what I was saying. He could never could have introduced some new deity to a group, to millions. Remember, the Hebrews in, in, in Egypt, this, under bondage, the, those who were, that were delivered were millions and millions. Had he just introduced a new deity, that would not have gone over, <laughs> you know, that he could not have succeeded. This is essential. Okay. Now, if Moses, who is so much earlier than all other writers, traces the tradition of his doctrine from so remote a period, it is obvious uh, uh, how, how far the Holy Scriptures must, in point of antiquity, surpass all other writings. That's what I'm saying. If Honestly, if, if, this, if this really, truly does go back all the way to Adam, then obviously it surpasses any other writings by far. By far. It's not even close. Okay. Another evidence Calvin observed was the heavenliness or the majesty of the matter, which I've discussed with my, at least I've given the example through my own experience. You know, again, I've developed through, through learning all of these points of logic and, and philosophy and, and worldviews. I've established this way of criticizing literature. Any literature I come across, I just naturally criticize it. When I come to the Bible, I find it criticizing me. I find it telling me 
about myself more than what I'm seeing and what this person is trying to say. Not, not everything you read in print is true. And that's what I'm saying. You, you know, that's why you have this critical analysis, you know, when you develop that. But once you get to the Bible, <laughs> it tells you how untrue you are. That's, there's no other writing like that. There's no other book. And so he's just pointing this out. Again, this is a growing deal, but these are, very, these are important points to, to, to uh, notice. Okay. There's a content description which I find are uh, so far beyond any other literary volume. It just goes back to what we were just saying. Calvin goes on to observe that the splendor of the prophets is not surpassed by the eloquence of the heathen writers. While Satan often, this is what he's saying, uh, while Satan, well, I'm paraphrasing. While Satan often tries to ape God and affects men to such eloquent ability, none possessed of any moderate share of sense need be told how vain and vile such affectation is. All the poets, uh, Homer, you know, in the, in the Iliad and the Odyssey, I mean, think about any of these secular poets who, who, has, who have, a, I mean, the, the, in the Greek, the Iliad and the Odyssey is really beautiful, it's really pretty, it's got a nice flow to it, okay, sounds really nice. <laughs> the poets, in its essence, in its being, in its substance, far surpasses, and the eloquence, if you, if you learn how to read the prophets, and, and because they have different ways of writing as well, but it, it really has a co coherent, beautiful, and holy flow that is unlike any other writer, any other writing. No matter how eloquent, no matter how superior in language, the content doesn't even come close. And the essence of it and, and the message of it doesn't even come close. Okay. All right. But this is, again, quote, obviously, whenever there are quotes, this is from Calvin, Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion. Uh, but in regard to the Holy Scriptures, however, however petulant men uh, may attempt to carpet them, they're replete with sentiments which is clear that man could, never could have conceived. He's talking about the prophets. Uh, Let each of the prophets be examined, and not one will be found who does not rise far higher than human reach. Those who feel their works insipid must be absolutely devoid of taste or salvation. I must say, because this is, this is, we'll get into kind of at the end of this, those who are not inspired, those who do not have the Spirit of God indwelling them, they're mere words. They could be, they could be uh, very meaningful. That's how I was saved. You know, just increasingly, increasingly, I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't get over the overwhelming truth that was screaming to me, okay? But ultimately, if you're, not, if you're not indwelt by the Spirit of God, you will more likely find these works in, to be insipid. If you are indwelt with the Spirit of God, you will find them anything but, and you will find that they rise far higher than human reach. In other words, far, human than any, far uh, higher than any human has the ability to do. Because God breathed it into this, these men. That's, that's very important. But again, we'll kind of get into that towards the end. However, in his introduction, he said, Our admiration is elicited more by the dignity of the matter than by the graces of style. That's what I'm getting at. So, uh, our admiration is elicited more by the dignity of the matter. So, again, the, the, the content, what it's actually saying, more than, more than the graces of the style. Okay? All right. 
Another observation he made was, to paraphrase, that the Bible describes its heroes warts and all. It's not portraying a bunch of perfect men except for Christ. All of the other men (laughs) had had problems and fell. Moses had his issues. Elijah had his, his issues. All the men in the Bible are not perfect men until Christ comes. Look at the apostles. They're a rag a mess <laughs> for a long time. Uh, anyway, so he talks about, so he gives a few examples. So we're just going to glimpse a few examples. This is an introductory thing that, again, I increase, I encourage you to increase your studies in. I can't give you, you know, all of the, all of the information, all of the studies, and all of the analysis in three sessions. You know, so what I have to do is, is, is give this to you as briefly as I can for you to at least have the foundation and, and hopefully that will engender a desire to seek after more. Okay, so he talks about Jacob when giving his patriarchal blessings to his sons just before he dies. He says this, his, so this is his prophecy. This is supposed to be when he's blessing his sons. It's not so much of a blessing for Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi are brothers, instruments of cruelty in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man. That goes back to a story that you can read about on your own. But that, so he, he, Jacob is passing on really a woe. It's kind of a curse on to his two sons. Just so you know, Moses is writing this, and he's of the tribe of Levi. So, you know, <laughs> it wouldn't work well for him, you know, if he's trying to make this whole thing up. Anyway, um, but also, again, warts and all. These aren't perfect men. Uh, Many of them were murderers. Moses himself was a murderer, remember? Okay. He talks about how Moses wrote about his brother Aaron and their sister Miriam wickedly murmuring against him and how he did not assign the high priesthood. So that's one thing. And then he didn't assign the high priesthood to his own sons. Instead, he consigned them to the lowest place just to name a few examples. Those are just a few examples. Now, we'll turn to miracles, which I hope will introduce the profundity of the subject. I've been waiting for this, and we need to pay attention here, okay? We need to pay attention because this is, is, is one internal way we prove miracles. Remember, we proved that the, the supernatural being exists, right? God exists. Now we're establishing the God of the Bible is the true God. That, that God that we found to, be, to exist is the God of the Bible, right? But, um, uh, but remember, so we established the supernatural being. Now we at least know that supernatural events can take place, such as miracles, right? Okay, now we're going to kind of look at this more in detail. So Calvin began, began with Moses as he was really the first prophet attested by such inexplicable miracles. Everybody who came before him, there were some amazing things like the flood and all sorts of different things, Joseph interpreting dreams, all these different kind of things. But Moses had a ton, you know, obviously, you know, you think of the plagues on in Egypt, you think about the parting of the Red Sea, you think about a lot of these things that, that, that are explicit and, and specific to his ministry, okay? And even that goes back to, remember, when, when God had told him that he was going to raise up a prophet like unto Moses. And nobody was able to do as many of these miracles. Elijah did many, but as many of these as Christ did, especially reflecting his miracles. And that's a, story, a subject for another day. But he, he was really the first prophet to 
perform these inexplicable miracles. He lays out numerous. Uh, he lays out numerous of the miracles and uh, observes rightly that God, that God by all these proclaimed aloud that Moses was an undoubted prophet. This is again. Let's just okay. He then went on to keenly observe Moses published all these things in the assembly. And remember, the word assembly is ecclesia, so it's really the church of the people. How then could he possibly impose on the very eyewitnesses of what was done? Pay attention here. Is it conceivable that he would have come forward and while accusing the people of unbelief, obstinacy, ingratitude, and other crimes, have boasted uh, that his doctrine had been confirmed in their own presence by miracles which they never saw? Is it possible that this, this man who's making up all these things, because he never really did a miracle, right? Because miracles are impossible. Is it possible? Because he talks about these people as murmuring and all these, um, they're obstinate, they're unbelieving, they're they're, they have no gratitude, uh, and other crimes, serious crimes. So he's writing the, the account of all these, the terrible things that these people, uh, you know, have done. Is it even conceivable to imagine he's writing, first of all, of all of their obstinacy and all their murmuring, and in there, he writes that he performed a bunch of miracles and they just accept it, even though they never saw it? Is that possible? We will see. This is essential. Think of, I think I go on here next. But think about this. Think about this. Think about the, <laughs> the credulity that's involved in just accepting that even as a possibility the likelihood of that happening is just astronomical. Okay, so that's, that's one. Okay. That's a striking observation, which, which if taken to Christ, merits the same conclusion. We observed last week, before proceeding as we did, the basic reliability of the Bible as a historical document. Okay, let's just talk about Luke specifically. Okay, the, the Gospels and all of the letters were written in the period of those people. Of those people. If there weren't any miracles done, and remember, the apostles, even Peter and, and Paul, later say, you know, the, these things, you know, Christ, Christ's uh, earthly ministry where he was doing miracles and he was crucified, he implores them, which you yourselves know. They were eyewitnesses of the miracles. And then they, some of them came to believe. Some of them did not. But there was no objection. No, I don't remember any miracles. It was widespread. Remember, he fed the four and five thousand, which were just men. Really means like there were probably twenty thousand people there. His miracles didn't happen in a vacuum, and if they never happened, the gospel, the Christianity, wouldn't be here. It's essential. They wrote during that time, and remember, all of Luke's Luke's the most attested historian of antiquity. So we know that at least his history of, of those, you know, that can be proven empirically because we can't go back, obviously, unless we have a time machine and see and witness him doing miracles. Remember, we, our faith, the foundation of our faith is based on the eyewitness testimony of the apostles and the testimony of the prophets and the law, right? But they saw these things. The resurrection happened specifically to more than 500 people, remember? And though that's because Christ is, depend, is, is determining to have his witness through eyewitness testimony of the resurrection. Other men, is, is, they're just other means, but we base it on their eyewitness testimony. 
Had it not happened, there would not be a church. That's essential. That's essential. If Christ wasn't raised, it would have been easy. They just should have brought out the body. Or they could have just said he spiritually rose. There's a lot there. They, they go against every possible <laughs> means by which to try to elude and try to sneak something in. Everything that they proclaim, everything that the Bible gives, has, has um, an antithetical response that has no substance. That's, that's just essential. Okay, I must say that, the, well, that's basically what I was saying. Uh, so, and remember, we're even looking at the book of Acts, where the apostles are giving, given this power too. And again, how is Paul writing all these, these epistles talking about this? How is Luke talking about this? He sends it to an official. He sends it to this Roman official of some sort. We don't know in what capacity. But if Luke had been lying about any of that, First of all, Paul's, I mean, it just goes against any conventional idea, any conventional thinking that would just go against that. You would, you would have to force yourself to go against this. That's my main point. Okay, that's what I was saying. They were written at the time of the events when any objections uh, would have been most pertinent. Okay, however, so far from anything of the sort, we have seen repeatedly that the apostles pointed their, this is what I was saying, they pointed their ears to their own eyewitness experience of Christ's miracles, which drew many to believe. Not to, not to mention that day of Pentecost. Remember when the, when the Spirit of God, in, which was the sound of a much, mighty rushing wind, all the men are speaking in different languages, and all the, other, all the Jews who had come from all over, the, all over the place hear them speaking in their own language? That didn't happen in a vacuum. They go on to talk about that later on. Again, this, this could have been done away with a long time ago, but it kept on expanding through the instrumentality of other men that God, is, God had given His Spirit to in a very special way to pass on from generation to generation. Okay. Uh, let, the let the church declare with unabashed boldness that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and He was crucified for our redemption, risen that we might live in Him, and ascended on high to make intercession for us. This is true history. This is true fact. This, He is. He is, and we'll get, we'll get into that more, too, at the end. Again, I must emphasize this is true history. We can dwell on this for some time, but let's continue uh, with Calvin's argument. We'll return there. Uh, proceeding with the miracles, he discusses uh, whether this was mere magic. So Moses, anyway, he uses Moses as an example again. Was this mere magic? First, he observes that the law given by God and written by Moses ordered everyone who should consult soothsayers and magicians to be stoned. Uh, Leviticus 30, verse 6. So that would be pretty tough, but he goes on. Um, he mentions that no imposter deals in tricks without, stu without studying to raise his reputation by, the amaz by amazing the common people. That's what, that's what magicians do. That's the, there's their means by which to do the magic. It, you know, basically just to amaze the people, How, which was what Pharaoh's magicians did. Uh, however, Moses cried out that he and his brother Aaron were nothing. He continued to tell them that and that they merely executed what God commanded, thus clearing himself of any such suspicion of magic. Okay, that's just a brief little view in that, but uh, that's, that's another observation. 
This one's, I think, a bigger one. <laughs> he added, what kind of incant, and we'll talk about this, uh, what kind of incantations could cause man manna to rain from heaven every day in a sufficient quantity to maintain a people while anyone who gathered more than the appointed measure saw his incredulity divinely punished by its turning to worms? To this we may add uh, that God uh, then suffered his servant to be subjected to so many serious trials that the ungodly cannot now gain anything by their clamor. So, Remember, we've talked about how the manna rained down from heaven. First of all, it rained down so much to feed all of these people, to provide for all of these people. But should anybody go gather more than they were supposed to, you know, basically it would turn to worms. It would turn to worms. And if you tried to hold on to it the next day, it would turn to worms. What kind of magic trick does that? What kind of magic incantation, incantation could do that? Uh, so again, they were punished divinely by its turning into words. We must, to this we may add, that God then suffered his servant, Moses, to be subjected by, to so many serious trials that the ungodly cannot now gain anything by their clamor. Again, this is foolishness to just accept this doesn't happen or he was just performing magic. What kind of magic is this? Okay. When the people uh, rose up against Moses, how could any imposter have, have been enabled to elude their rage? If he was just merely a magician and, and all these people gathered and then he's delivered by God's grace and God's providence, how could he have been able to elude their rage? He, he couldn't have. These mere magicians aren't able <laughs> to do that. The event, the, the event plainly shows that by these means his doctrine was attested to all succeeding generations. Another point Calvin made was that Moses records the fact that the, that the tribe of Judah was assigned the first place and not his own Levi. In uh, Jacob's blessing his sons, he says, the scepter shall not depart from the tribe of Judah and, and not his own. He, he debases his own. They're, they are given the priesthood, but they're not given a, a land either. They're, the priests are kind of scattered in all the different tribes. This is further attested uh, by the fact that after 400, this is important, after 400 years had passed following Moses' ministry, Saul, who is from the tribe of Benjamin, is first anointed king, we've talked about that, and following a dark descent, which we have briefly considered, David from the tribe of Judah is anointed. Calvin says, who could have looked for a king out of the plebeian family of a herdsman? And out of seven brothers, who could have thought that the honor was destined for the youngest? And then by what means did he afterward come within reach of the throne? From his son, we'll get into this. Uh, who dare say that his anointing was regulated by human art or skill or prudence and was not rather the fulfillment of divine prophecy? This is one. This is one. 400 years after Moses' ministry, which, which he, after he recorded that, Joseph, that Jacob had said the scepter shall not depart from the tribe of Judah. For God first calls this man Saul to be king. And he, he, at first he's, he's a good king. And then by a dark and gradual fall, uh, he's usurped. And the true first king from the tribe of Judah is, is anointed king. And he was a herdsman, very simple, simple person. And out of this, he had... There were seven sons, and out of the seven, who would have thought that this honor was actually given to the youngest? If you read the, the account of Samuel being sent to go, go anoint, it, Samuel shows up and he sees all the older brothers. He's like, oh, this has to be the one. And God says, no. Oh, well, then this has to be the one. God says, no. And, and he goes on, and, and apparently David wasn't even there. And, David, and Samuel turns to Jesse, Jesse's David's uh, father, and he says, 
are these all your sons? Because I'm, I was called here to anoint one of your sons. And if these are all of them, you know, and he says, no, you know, uh, one's keeping the sheep. And you've got to understand at that time, you know, that's kind of a, that's kind of a low job. And, you know, he sends for him, he comes, he's all ruddy looking, he's good looking, young chap, and he's anointed king. Anyway, so the scepter, the first king was actually from the tribe of Judah, which happened 400 years after he wrote that. Okay, that's just one, one little glimpse. Okay, additionally, considering the admission of the Gentiles in the divine covenant, which was more generally prophesied originally by Noah. Remember, we, we even talked about that with Japheth and, and Seth. When, when uh, the sons of Japheth would, would, were uh, scattered throughout all the earth, and God says, you know, uh, eventually there will, be, there will come a day where they will return and dwell in the tents of Shem. Okay. Um, so, uh, but confirmed and expanded by Moses almost 2,000 years before it happened. Remember that great map. I know it's just a map. That was the first time that God sent out his people for his people 2,000 years after this beautiful song declared it would happen. It's Deuteronomy 32. I encourage you to read it. But again, Noah had said it. But this happened 2,000 years before it happened. Uh, further in Calvin's argument, uh, he observed a few examples regarding Isaiah. Isaiah had prophesied during a reign of peace upon Judah and even had... This time, they even were protected by the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, who later take them into captivity. Uh, that, and that Jerusalem would be destroyed and the people taken captive. So he first started his prophesy, just, uh, just like Amos, remember? It was during a time of great peace, the economic boom, everything's going very well. And then these prophets are coming out and they're saying, you know, y'all are going to be taken captive. You know, this city is going to be destroyed. All this kind of a thing. But he's doing this during the reign. He's prophesying their captivity. And he even prophesies that these are going to be the ones who take them captive. But these are the ones who actually are helping them. So if at the time he's prophesying, should they be attacked, they actually, the Babylonians actually would have helped them at the time he's prophesying. Uh, furthermore, and quite astonishingly, Isaiah prophesied about the return and even accurately named Cyprus, he calls him by name, uh, by whom the Chaldeans would be subdued and the people restored to freedom. So he later conquers the Babylonians and, and then uh, sets the Jews free, the Israelites free. Incidentally, this is one, this is one of those times the critics, given the necessary, the necessary divine influence this would necessitate, pass it off as a later body of literature edited after the fact. This is something that they will say, then either Isaiah was written later, or a later copyist just added this in. This, Isaiah didn't originally do this, which again, imagine the necessary, like, how do you convince the millions and millions of people scattered all over the place to just edit their Bibles? You know, that's ludicrous. It's insane. It's a presupposition based on a confounding, <laughs> I mean, just nonsense. There's no way that could happen. That would have to be an incredible scandal and like one which everybody would have had to partake in. Insane, impractical, <laughs> impossible. Like you just can't actually do it. Logistically, it can't be done. Imagine changing the Bible right now. 
we, we want to change a name, right? We want to change the, the, the king of Assyria to Bob. We, we want to name him Bob. You know, we, we want to change the name and, and maybe, or even uh, Alexander the Great. You know, this seems like it was actually Alexander the Great. Let's just write Alexander the Great. Imagine what would, the, what would we have to do? We'd have to convince every single denomination, every single people, every single Eastern Orthodox Christian, everybody, that this is the way it's always been, kind of a thing. It, it's ridiculous. We're going to go long. Uh, okay, I find, it ridiculous, I find it a ridiculously credulous position that a book so essential to a people and vastly held dear and all who knew its contents would so easily and brutishly be edited to no cavail or perturbation of the people. That's basically what I was saying. This is absurd. This is absolutely absurd. It is a small mind which induces such folly and that to subdue the greatest authority possible, the infallible God, I, God himself. However, I digress, but I'm going to digress a little bit here for a second. Um, uh, so, these men assert their own authority to subdue the greatest authority. These men, because they're experts, right? And like David Hume since he's an expert in empiricism, and he just says miracles aren't possible, therefore miracles never happened, because we just take his great authority over the greatest authority. That's credulous. That's foolish. It a, takes a small mind to do that. Okay. Isaiah had prophesied about Cyprus a uh, hundred years before his birth when it was impossible. So sick means, obviously, I paraphrase somewhat, uh, just, you know, tenses. Uh, it was impossible to guess that some Cyprus would arise to make war on the Babylonians and after subduing their powerful monarchy, put an end to the captivity of the children of Israel. It's ridiculous. It, it's just impossible to guess that that would be the case. Okay. Does not this simple, again, this is him, does not this simple unadorned uh, narrative plainly demonstrate that what Isaiah spoke was not the conjecture of man, but the undoubted oracle of God? How could a man have done this? How could, a, how could Moses have been able to do any of that and to prophesy about things that would happen so, much, so far on? And remember, we even talked about there are over, there are over 300 specific and absolute prophecies from the Old Testament that allude specifically to Christ. There are over a thousand prophecies in the Old Testament that did that that were uh, uh, fulfilled in throughout Scripture. You don't get those odds. I, well, I've told you that. You know that's that's akin. They say, I mean, the odds are really one in like a, a Googleplex. There aren't. I mean, you can't imagine all the zeros necessary to even fathom that. Okay. Uh, he went on to mention that so. Uh, Calvin made the point that Jeremiah even predicted their 70 years of captivity. Before they were taken captive, he predicted that it would be 70, 70 years for the tribe of Jew. Isaiah 42.9 says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. That's how the prophets knew. He's, he's giving this little notation just to, just to kind of give you, just to re re return you and remind you that these things are from God. We we are we are contemplating these things through through our minds through because we're men and women and we are contemplating these things with our minds, but this is from God. Okay, and he's just kind of pointing us back to that. Okay, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who prophesied during the same time frame but so far far apart, 
you know, geographically, harmonize as completely as they did as if they had mutually dictated the words one to the other, which, again, they hadn't. And if Daniel's prophecy uh, in his ninth chapter embraced a future of almost 600 years as if he were writing about past events which were generally known. I cannot tell you. These are just a few examples. These are just a few examples. Okay. Calvin concluded this section with this postscript. Listen, if the pious will duly meditate on these things, they will be sufficiently instructed to, the, to silence the cavils of the ungodly. The demonstration is too clear to be gainsaid. I, I beg of you, I plead you to meditate on these things, to consider these things, to, to read the, and, and seek these things out for yourself so that the, the, this testimony and the assurance of your faith is sure and your foundation strong, that you're not building on sand. You're building on His foundation, which He has laid from eternity for eternity. Okay. The next argument was general, but it, but it was aimed at, uh, towards this point. Uh, he made the point that critics go so far to deny that there ever was a Moses. People will go so far as to even deny that there ever was a Moses. And if one were to object to whether there ever was a Plato, an Aristotle, or a Cicero, they would be justly chastised and mocked for their folly. Right? Right? Again, nobody objects to the existence of Plato. Nobody objects to the existence of Aristotle or Cicero. They do to Jesus. They do to Moses. Why? Because they want to suppress his authority. It's the only reason. There's too much testimony. There's too much historical evidence, empirical evidence, even for the naturalists who, who says all there is is matter. Even when it's proven through matter, still just suppress him. Okay. He discusses it. He discusses a time when the law had been neglected by the priest. Okay, this is, a, this is another uh, account. By the priests and the people, but found in the temple during the reign of Josiah, great king of uh, Judah. The original had been deposited in the temple, and a copy taken from it had been deposited in the royal archives. So in Deuteronomy, they made another copy for it to put in the law, basically the Bible, the scriptures then, and made a copy of it to put it in the royal archive. And the Bible at this, at this time had been neglected for a time, for a short time, and then it was found in the temple in the royal archives under the reign of Josiah. And, and he, he was a great king. I love Josiah. Uh, when, it was, when it was found, he's grieved. He tears his, uh, he, he rips his garments, and, and they read the whole thing. He reads the whole thing, and he has to write. The kings always had to write the whole law. Anyway, that's another subject. Okay. While it had been neglected for a short time, they found its original, which was the same as that which had been neglected as, as, that, as then, and uh, since been transmitted in bro unbroken succession from generation to generation. That's just, again, showing that this transmission has been faithful. But, okay, this, during this time, though, all that had occurred, so all that had occurred at this time was that the priests had failed to publish the law itself in due form and the people had neglected the wanting read, wanted read, reading of it, which kind of takes place largely in the church today. Um, the, the, many preachers and ministers fail to give the scripture and many people really don't want it to be given, sadly. Additionally, scarcely an age passed during which its authority was not confirmed or renewed. 
this little criticism that we've talked about for the last 200 years has been the fiercest. It's been the most fierce. But this has been happening. I mean, there's, there are always these controversies. That's why we did this study. So that we can answer. We can have, uh, we always be prepared to have an, a defense, remember, an apology, an apologia uh, for the hope that is within you. Okay, and that's why we're doing this. Okay, Calvin, to sum up the whole in one word, it is certain beyond dispute that these writings passed down, if I may so express it, from hand to hand, being transmitted into an, an unbroken series from their fathers, who either with their own ears heard them spoken, or learned them from those who had, while the remembrance of them was fresh. So that just goes on to the transmission from generation to generation to generation. They either, it's, it's either from hand to hand, eye to eye, or ear to ear um, transmission. Direct. Direct. That's basically it. Okay. Proceeding to the next argument, he addressed the objection regarding the time Antiochus, Antiochus uh, had ordered all the books of Scripture to be burned, which is found in the first Maccabees uh, 57 and 58. The question is then raised, where did we get the copies we now have, we now have right? Because he ordered all of them to be burned. So the question arises, how do we have these copies? This on the surface seems like a valid and potent argument, but until it's noticed, as it was by Calvin, that basically, how was it so quickly fabricated once the persecution ended? Once the persecution ended, they, uh, they already had copies uh, there. It's certain that they, were, uh, that they were in existence the moment the persecution ceased and acknowledged without dispute by all the pious who had been educated in their doctrine and were familiar, uh, acquainted with them. Rather, while all the wicked so wantonly insulted the Jews as if they had uh, leagued together for the, for the purpose, so they, they do uh, accuse them of going, doing this, uh, not one uh, ever charged them with having introduced spurious books. That's important. Uh, whatever, in their opinion, the Jewish religion might be, uh, they acknowledge that Moses was the founder of it. So, let's go on. He added, What then did those babblers who, uh, but betray their snarling petulance and falsely alleging the spuriousness of books whose, sac whose sacred antiquity is proven by the consent of all history? Again, th this, this is proven by the consent of all history. It's not, it's not proven by, you know, this particular account. No. God took great care to preserve his word even amidst tyrannical flames. This tyrant who's ordering this, pious and true priests and others of such zeal and affection did not hesitate to transmit the scriptures to posterity even at the expense of their own lives. God, is only, God has always had a remnant. remnant. He, he says that throughout the Bible, even though so many, many seem you know, unfaithful and, and apart from him, he says he has a remnant. And he always has a faithful remnant ready to give up their lives for the cause of God and for the cause of his word. And they weren't lacking then either. And that's how it remained. These people risking their lives kept it. As Calvin put it, who does not recognize it as a sign signal and miraculous work of God that those sacred monuments which the ungodly persuaded themselves had utterly perished, they were just convinced, since they declared the decree that they were all destroyed, <laughs> uh, immediately returned to resume their former rights, so uh, the scriptures, and indeed in greater honor, for the Greek translation appeared to disseminate them over the whole world. So despite this, this burning, actually the, the Septuagint flourished after this persecution. Uh, this was not a singular event. God has preserved his word through many such trials, as they remained safe and entire amid the manifold disasters by which the Jewish nation was occasionally crushed, devastated, and almost exterminated. Again, this is just one example out of many. Read your Bible. <laughs> okay, The Jews were, were 
constantly attacked. Through history, there have been attacks since, since Christ came, as we all know, um, more recent ones, but that's been a thing for a long time. Okay, Calvin continued by observing that the Hebrew language had suffered uh, following the Jews' return from captivity. That just goes on to the Septuagint. He argued that this is of importance because the Septuagint, again, that's a Greek translation of the Bible, in comparison to the Hebrew, more clearly establishes the antiquity of the law and the prophets. And he says about, he uh, explains it through this. And who, did, uh, and who did God employ to preserve the doctrine of salvation contained in the law and the prophets that Christ might manifest it in its own time? Uh, the Jews, the bitterest enemies of Christ, and hence Augustine justly calls them librarians of the church because they, supply, because they supplied us with books which they themselves had not the use. Sorry, that's supposed to be us. But, so, who did God use to preserve the doctrine of salvation contained in the Law and the Prophets that Christ might manifest in, in, in its own time? What the Bible is saying? The Jews. The Jews, the bitterest enemies of Christ, and hence, Augustine justly calls them librarians of the church because they supplied us with the books uh, which they themselves had not the use. They should have known that Christ was the Christ through the very word that, that they had passed down to us. Calvin then proceeded to the New Testament and begins with the mean and humble style of the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And how the proud disdain their simplicity with disdain. Uh, yeah. Uh, because they did not attend to the principal heads of, uh, heads of doctrine, uh, for if they had, they might easily infer that these evangelists treat of heavenly mysteries beyond the capacity of man. So again, this just goes back to the critics see the simplicity of the, of the narrative and, and disdain it for that reason. But the principal heads of doctrine, if they actually con it even considered those, what, what they were actually saying and the majesty of Christ in and through them, they wouldn't. They wouldn't have. They would have seen the heavenly nature of the of the gospels. Uh, even Christ's discourses, which are summarized in the synoptics, maintain their profundity despite their succinctness and simple dictation. His Sermon on the Mount, his Sermon on the Plain. I mean, they're 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 somewhat pithy and short, but they're filled with eternal content, content that has not come from the mouth of any other man, then or since. They're eternal words of God coming out of it. Simple. He doesn't have to dress it up. Even Paul says, says, to, says um, I did not come to you in eloquence of words. I came to you knowing Christ and Him crucified. I, I determined not to know anything among you except Christ and Him crucified. Okay, okay. The Gospel of John, however, is rich in majesty and should render any objection of the former null and void. We're going to kind of try to fly through here. In addition, Peter and Paul, too, write in such a heavenly manner to burn the hearts of, of any man or woman. So the style of John's, first of all, is very ornate, is very beautiful. He writes in a very um, picturesque uh, kind of a way. Um, and Peter and Paul do, uh, also write uh, like that. However, apart from this is one circumstance sufficient it, 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 to itself uh, to exalt the doctrine above uh, the world. Their doctrine above the world. Matthew, who was formerly a tax collector, Peter and John, who were fishermen, being simple and illiterate, Peter and John anyway, had never learned in, in any human school that which they delivered to others. They didn't go to school for this. They didn't go, you know, study under, you know, and they, they learned them directly from Christ. Remember, their understanding 
was very limited until after his resurrection and even still limited until after his ascension and his sending his spirit. Remember, that's when uh, Peter's first sermon was. That's when his, so their understanding was completely heightened after the, or during, in, on the day of Pentecost. Um, we've discussed how Paul, who had been a devout Jew and harsh persecutor of the church, became a new man when he was called to preach the gospel he had uh, once been determined to destroy. Again, these are just some internal uh, indicators to uh, validate uh, the authority of the, uh, the Bible. His next argument, argument can be summarized from these lines. So these are a couple of uh, Calvin's lines. The powers of the earth uh, arm themselves for it, the Bible's destruction, uh, but, but all their attempts vanished in smoke. When thus powerfully assailed on every, on every side, side, how could it have resisted if it trusted only to human aid? No, its divine origin is more completely established by the fact that when all human wishes were against it, it advanced by its own energy. I hope you understand that. That's succinct, that's beautiful, that puts it perfectly. Does everybody understand it? Okay. Returning to Calvin's introduction, he said, For the truth is vindicated in opposition to every doubt when, unsupported by foreign aid, it has its sole sufficiency in itself. I'm going to read his last argument. <clears throat> Again, with what confidence does it become us to subscribe to a doctrine attested and confirmed by the blood of so many saints? They, when once they had embraced it, hesitated not boldly and intrepidly, and even with great alacrity to meet death in its defense, being transmitted, being transmitted to us with such an earnest, who of us shall not receive it with firm and unshaken conviction? It is therefore no, no small proof of the authority of Scripture that it was sealed with the blood of so many witnesses, especially when it is consi considered that in bearing testimony to the faith, they met death not with uh, fanatical enthusiasm, as erring spirits are sometimes wont to do, but with a firm and constant yet sober godly zeal. There are other reasons, neither few nor feeble, by which the dignity and majesty of the scriptures may, may be not only proved to the pious, but also completely vindicated against the, against the cavils of slanderers. These, however, cannot of themselves produce a firm faith in scripture until our Heavenly Father manifests his presence in it, and therefore, thereby secure implicit reverence for it. Then only, then only, therefore, does Scripture suffice to give a saving knowledge of God when its, certain, when its certainty is founded on the inward persuasion of the Holy Spirit. That's basically what I was saying in the beginning. Still, the human testimonies which go to confirm it will not be without effect if they are used in subordination to that chief and highest proof as secondary helps to our weakness. But it is foolish to attempt to prove to infidels that the Scripture is the Word of God. Remember, we talked about that. This, this it cannot be known to be except by faith. Justly, therefore, does Augustine remind us that every man who would have under, any understanding in such high matters must previously possess piety and mental peace. Okay, so again, that just goes on to, remember we had said to the unbelievers, to those outside the church, we don't prove the authority and the absolute authority of the Bible. We prove its basic reliability. That's where we start with the pagan. Inside the church, this is completely different. The scriptures are our authority. There's nothing to believe if you cannot believe them. If you, do, if you cannot believe in the, and you can't trust the Bible, you have no God to trust. If this is his word, it's absolute and holy, and you get, don't get to pick and choose what you like and don't like. There are issues, there, there are problems, there, there, there are problems to, uh, there are 
times where it's difficult to understand. But through God's grace, you don't just give up. You seek. You seek after Him. Because once He's enlightened your life, you, you have no other desire but Him. I want to give a few concluding thoughts. This session has been mainly philosophical, mainly has to do with cognition, reason, because remember though, I told you I was after your minds and your hearts. You can't get to the heart except through the mind, and the heart fills the mind with many things. This, I hope, has served to, to, to fill your minds with considerations that warm and strengthen your love and your affection towards God, which will then fill up into your mind. It's a beautiful system at work that God employs. But, one of the other things, remember when we started this off, started this series, we talked about the philosophers, um, was, were, were looking at for unity and diversity, right? And through all sorts of means, they, then they came, they named it the Logos, right? Well, in John's Gospel, his first sentence says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Remember, the Greek word for word is Logos. So that was a ground-shaking deal where he says that. But what he says there is that the Logos in the beginning was the Word, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. So John's telling us, in what there are these distinctions, right? In one way, he's with, so so he's not identified. Because so, anybody, anytime you're with somebody, you are not that person, right? You're with them, and then he says, "And the logos was God." Okay, quickly. First, uh, there there are a few different Greek words that we can translate "if." Uh, one's para, which we've looked at, which Christ uses parabaleos, you know, parables, to throw alongside of something. So it's kind of one thing going alongside another. Um, another is uh, meta, uh, or, uh, yeah, meta. And that's basically right next to each other kind of a thing. The other is, I'm sorry, the first one was sin. That's right alongside. The other one is para, and that's basically face-to-face. And that's the word John uses, that Christ, the Logos, was with God face to face in a very intimate way, in a way completely different than like you and I are just, I'm with you, you know, and I'm with you. When I say I'm with her in like the marital aspect, that at least gives you a glimpse into, as to what that means. And then he says, he was God, is God. One of the, I think, wonderful things to consider, uh, and I've, I've learned this through my studies. First of all, the unity and the diversity out there obviously is found in God. We've established that. An amazing thing is there's unity and diversity and then the unity and the community and the mystery of the Trinity. There's a union in diversity even within the Godhead. There's a distinction in person, but there's, there's one. They are one in being. Remember, the Son does nothing apart from the Father. 
The Spirit does nothing apart from the Son or the Father. But they are not inferior. That does not make the Son inferior to the Father in dignity, or, nor the Spirit. They are one, but there is unity and diversity in the beautiful community and mystery of the Trinity. I just find that to be a great culmination of, of this series in particular. Anybody have any questions? I guess I can go one more. Anybody have any questions? Good? All right. We uh, knocked that off.